Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. You uh, probably normally won't see me in this capacity, but every once in a while, um, it's a pleasure to serve in this way as well as other ways. Um, I know when Jerry shares, uh, he often has uh, numbers to, to associated with his progress in life and in the Christian life. And if I live long enough, my numbers can measure up to his numbers, maybe. But a couple numbers I'll share with you that you might not uh, normally know about me. Um, 61 years ago, yesterday, by the date, was the first Sunday that I attended church. Uh, church attendance was important for my family, and I used to tease my mom and say, you know, I was born on Saturday, and I'm sure I was in church on Sunday. And she, she said, oh, no, we waited a week. So <laughs> yesterday would have been the week after my birth on the Saturday, and I would have been in church. And then this year is uh, 53 years since I came to Christ. Excuse me. Um, and then it's uh, 51 years since I joined the first church that I joined. And so it's the work of God in my life in bringing me through the process. I don't tell you those things because it makes me better or special. What it has done is given me a lot longer period of time to practice confessing sin and repenting. And that's what we all need, and that's why we're here. Uh, so enough about me. We're going to look at uh, a book. Michelle mentioned books. This is the most important book. Um, I know some of you get this through other means. The blessing of getting it from the book is that's the only thing in here. When you get it off your phone or off of a tablet or some other electronic device, that's where all the other stuff comes also. And so it becomes kind of not so special. When you take it out of the written Word of God, that's all it is. So we're going to get back into the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Pastor Shane has been taking us through the Gospel of Mark. This morning we're going to look at a text in Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 22. Before we read that and take a look at it, let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for its richness and its depth. We thank you for the many truths and essential things that are present in it. We also thank you that most of all, it presents to us from our vantage point, the living word, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come into your word this morning, we ask that you, by your spirit, and your grace and your mercy on our behalf, would give us ears to hear you speak. Give us minds to comprehend the value of the truth and give us hearts to respond. We thank you for this blessing of this time, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, often we've probably read this text in our scripture reading through the Bible. Um, someone may have shared something about this with us. We tend to read it and go, well, I'm not really into fasting, so I'll just kind of go over that. Uh, I don't really sew patches on my clothes anymore because it's cheaper to buy new ones. And I don't get wine in wineskins. I like the box because it's cheap. <laughs> so we kind of skate over it and then go on our merry way. But Mark, with uh, most likely input from Peter, loads into these five verses an incredible amount of history as well as the redemption that God is working. Um, we don't spend a lot of time with history. Uh, definition of history, if you've not heard it before, just to keep in mind as you just kind of split that word. And history, the real definition of it is it's his story. Everything that happens is his story of what he's doing. And the risk of using the word story, unfortunately, anymore is that we think of it as it's just a fable. And of course, you'll hear that from people. Oh, the Bible's just a bunch of fairy tales. But then you ask people particularly, well, when was the last time you read those fairy tales? Well, most of them have never read them. Or if they did, it was when they were a kid and they just kind of dismiss it like it's not important. It's very easy to do that. But in this case, it's not a fairy tale. It's a real historical event. Took place at a real place in real time, and that's what we get in the context as well as in this text. We don't know exactly what prompted this question. It may be simply that the people were trying to figure out Jesus. Um, it could have been somewhat out of envy. I mean, fasting is a lot of work especially if you're ever around people who are not fasting. <laughs> I 
Fasting means you feel the effects of not having food in your stomach, and you see somebody eating something, and it's like, I, I can't resist. It's, it's hard work. Mark in here doesn't tell us who the people are. Uh, Luke says they came to Jesus. And that's not as helpful, but in the context, you could figure it out. Interestingly, Matthew says John's disciples come to Jesus and ask him this question. <clears throat> and that's where it could be out of envy. Hey, we're fasting, we're suffering, and you guys are not. What's the deal? Well, it's also interesting that in the context, um, those of you who were here a few weeks back when Pastor Shane preached about Jesus calling Levi or Matthew, uh, it was in Capernaum. Jesus had come back to Capernaum, which is the town he had assumed as his base to live and to operate from, to go about preaching and teaching and all that. If you look at a map of Israel, you see the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and all that. Well, if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum is on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. You can go to Capernaum today. You can see Peter's house. Uh, archaeological evidence has pretty much confirmed that's where Peter lived. Uh, you can see the remnants of the, the synagogue in which Jesus taught and healed people. It's likely in the ruins of that city that you could see Matthew's house. They haven't determined which one it was. But in this case, Jesus was at Matthew's house. They were having a party with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. And that was the incident we saw a few weeks back as they come along and say, how is it that you can do this? Because you're not supposed to, you know, good Jews don't hang out with those kind of people. The, the riffraff, the lowlifes. And Jesus said, well, I didn't come to help you guys. You already got it figured out. At least you think you do. <laughs> so I'm going to help these guys out because they're the ones that are needing it. So here's Jesus sitting at a party. And these people come along and say, how can you do this? And Jesus could have justified himself. And we'll address that here in a minute. But he answers them. And he says to them, can wedding guests fast when there's a party going on? That's what weddings were for. <clears throat> and they don't know what to do with that. But to help us understand fasting and help us to get a perspective uh, and to get a sense of where this text really takes us, the only requirement of the law for fasting was on one day of the year. Leviticus chapter 23 and uh, verse 26 through 32 regarding the day of atonement. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. 
It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Each time you see afflict in this text, <clears throat> it refers to fasting and wearing sackcloth. And if you don't know what sackcloth is, we, I can describe it to you later. We don't see it very often anymore. When I was a kid, you saw it all the time. You could go to the grocery store. You could buy a bag of potatoes, and it was in a bag made out of sackcloth. Sackcloth was not comfortable. It was very pokey and itchy and not fun to wear. But that was part of the affliction. The other thing they would do is that they would put ashes on themselves in humility. So this whole process of fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting ash on yourself was affliction. It wasn't celebration. But the law commanded it <clears throat> for a reason. And in the process of not eating, you're taking food and presenting it to the Lord. And you're not supposed to be nibbling on it as you go. Verse 28 of Leviticus 23 goes on and says, You shall not do any work on that very day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. There were dire consequences for not participating in this process. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. So three times in this context, it's commanding good, upstanding Jews to afflict themselves in this process. Over time, the practice graduated, if you will, or changed. Uh, in the book of Luke, Jesus tells a parable but I'm thinking it's more than a parable. I'm thinking it's a real live incident that probably Jesus himself witnessed. But Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 and onward, he tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <clears throat> I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
And then we, in this case, we see what's the motive for the fasting. It, it became for this particular Pharisee and apparently for the Pharisees in general, probably not every last one, but it became a point of a badge of honor. Look at me. And we know that because in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching several very important things, uh, reiterating the Ten Commandments, essentially, and kind of fleshing it out. This is what it would look like if you obeyed the Ten Commandments, not just you can check them off. But he says in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6 and on, he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We know for a fact that Jesus fasted. And Jesus, when he's asked the question about fasting, could have justified himself, but he didn't choose to do that. We also know, based on this text, that Jesus assumes that his followers will also fast. But what he's making clear in the context of the question that's raised in Mark chapter 2 is, when do we fast and why do we fast? So Jesus' answer to us kind of looks kind of cryptic. It kind of looks like, huh? What are you talking about? He doesn't address the when do I eat or not eat? When can I party or not party? He says, uh, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So we have this contrast of the bridegroom with them and the bridegroom taken away. Well, who would a good Jew in the first century understand the bridegroom to be? And what in the world is a bridegroom? I mean, we don't use that word that way anymore. We obviously use the word groom, and that's where we get the word groom from. The importance of bridegroom is that the reality of the two coming together is going to happen. The other aspect of it is there is a particular bride for a particular groom. It's not just that there's a guy running around looking for some gal to make his bride. There's a particularity to it, and in this case, it's very particular. But in the Old Testament, the Jews understood the bridegroom to be God himself. And of course, in that scenario, the bride was Israel. And so all good Jews assumed that I belong to God because I'm a Jew, and I adhere to the law, and I do the things. Jeremiah a text that we looked at uh, 
a couple of weeks ago, tells us um, the uh, the context of it tells us what we need to know. Jeremiah thirty one verses thirty one through thirty four talks about. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And then he goes on and talks about the covenant that he will make and what that covenant means. And we're going to look at that a little bit more in a bit. But in that context, I encourage you to go back and examine that closely and take note of all of the times where the Lord says, I will. I will do this. I will make this happen. I will accomplish this. As you know, when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, God wrote them with his finger on stone. Now, we talk about things in our lives being cast in concrete as if it's fixed. We can't change that. We have to live with it. Well, that was kind of the object of God doing that with stone was here's the law. I'm giving it to you in a form that's not going to just go away easily. But as we know that in the process of receiving those stone tablets, the people had already begun to break the covenant before they had even seen it. And in a gesture of symbolism, I don't know that Moses did it intentionally, but on the way down, when he saw what was taking place, he tossed the tablets and they broke literally, demonstrating that that covenant wasn't going to work because the people couldn't keep it. Before they even saw it, they were already running astray. But God didn't give up. God didn't say, oh, okay, you're the bride that went astray. You've cheated on me already. I'm done with you. He said, no, we have to uh, <clears throat> approach this in a different way. John chapter 3, we read, uh, from the lips of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, the bridegroom, must increase, but I must decrease. And, of course, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and physically kept the covenant. That's the necessity of Jesus being born of a virgin, living a full and complete life before he went to the cross. If, if his objective was simply to remove our sin, he could have come as an adult and just gone to the cross and died on the cross, and he could have eradicated our sin. But then our state would be such that we would simply be without sin, 
but we would have no inherent righteousness. We would have not done anything to accomplish what God requires, and that is a perfect sinless life. We would not have that if it were not for Jesus living that life in our place, keeping the law in every regard, and then transferring that perfection to us, taking our sin upon himself, and then removing that sin, the scriptures tell us, as far as the east is from the west. And then rising from the dead to demonstrate that he did accomplish all that he came to accomplish. And to verify to us, later, as we'll see in a moment also, the giving of the Holy Spirit to confirm that when we receive what he's done for us, we are changed. So God himself came as the bridegroom to accomplish the marrying of himself to not Israel in terms of the literal people of the Jews, but to the church. Uh, Revelation 21 verse 9 is a verse you can check out later. Uh, in Romans, Paul makes it clear that not all who are of Israel are Israel. There's those who, obviously, as we just alluded to, they broke the first covenant. They don't want anything to do with the, the new covenant. And they do not fit. They're not included. Ephesians chapter 5, a uh, text that a lot of us are familiar with. Uh, the, the guys like this text because it says, wives, be submissive to your husbands. <laughs> and they go, oh, yeah, okay, I like that. Um, and I think this mic might be fading in and out a little, maybe not. Uh, but the important part uh, for the guys is husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her the bride that he wanted her to be. I encourage you to go to that text and look at it because the other part of that text says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two become one flesh. Paul says, yeah, I know this is a mystery. I don't know how it works, even though we know Paul was married because Pharisees were required to be married. We don't know anything about Paul's wife or anything else, but we know that was a necessity for him to have been a Pharisee. But he says, I know this is a mystery. But the significance of it is it refers to Christ in the church. The marriage that is the most successive, or most successful, most important, most significant of all. But when Jesus talks about the bridegroom being taken away, it's an early reference to what's going to happen to him. And of course, the people don't get it. His disciples even didn't get it when he was very specific and said, I am going to Jerusalem. I am going to be beaten and abused and tormented and tortured by the Gentiles and others, and I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'll rise back to life. And as we know, they, they wasn't, didn't compute. But Jesus, in making that comment about the bridegroom being taken away, is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 53. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I encourage you to go back and take a look at that as well, just as a reminder of all the things that 
not only Jesus encountered, but Isaiah writes about it so far in advance to Jesus coming and accomplishing that. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? In the context of Jesus' trial, just with Pilate alone, three times Jesus was declared not guilty. And Pilate said to Jesus in the, the text in, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus just kind of stopped talking to him, he said, oh, so you're not going to talk to me anymore? Don't you know that I have authority to have you crucified or the authority to release you? And Jesus said, you don't have any authority at all except if God gives it to you. So the one who delivered you delivered me to you is the one who has the greater sin. You're just a puppet here because you're not willing to use your authority, which he wasn't. Pilate, you know, oh, I'm, I'm the man. I have the authority. <laughs> he didn't use it. He was a wimp. He let Jesus be taken by the crowd, which was, of course, God's plan. But Pilate let it happen when he could have said, look, there's nothing in this man that deserves crucifixion. So Jesus is alluding to what's going to happen to him, and he's going to be taken away. And that's when there's no more celebration, at least in that day. That's what Mark makes clear in the text. The days are coming. There's going to be this process that's going to happen that the tide is going to turn against Jesus. And in that day, which is the day of his crucifixion, as, as we know, for the days after that, until they figured out that Jesus really did rise from the dead, he wasn't a ghost. It wasn't somebody's imagination or a dream or any other thing. People were lost. They had no idea what to do. And I'm sure many of them fasted, thinking, what are we going to do? God's plan just fell apart right here in front of us. And then Jesus goes on, Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, and he goes into this whole comparison contrast between old and new. And a lot of times we just kind of blow by that, again, because we, we don't tend to do these things. And even if we do, those who are inclined to sow would recognize this and say, okay, but what does that have to do with fasting? And what does that have to do with the bridegroom and what in the world is he talking about? Well, it's interesting in Scripture, there's many allusions to old and new about lots of things. The focus I want to look at just briefly here this morning to, to finish all of this up is the big one, which is the old covenant and the new covenant. And that's clearly where Jesus is pointing but involved in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which affects us individually and directly, is the old man and the new man. Those before Christ and those after Christ. 
But to take a look at the Old Covenant concept, again, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the people saw God as being the, the groom, as being the husband, as being the one they were married to. And that marriage took place by means of the law. You were married to God through the law, and if you kept the law, then that relationship was open. But if you broke the law, the relationship was broken. Now, it could be amended. You could go and on the Day of Atonement bring your sacrifice, and it could be renewed. But that was a constant thing. And that was the point of the text we looked at last week, if you were here, in Hebrews chapter 10, that there was a time when the repeated sacrifice was necessary because obviously we continue to sin. But God was pointing forward to a time when there would be no additional sacrifice necessary. Uh, to help us out with the whole concept of atonement, Again, it's one of those simplistic things, but you take the word atonement and you break it apart. And you look at it at one meant. That is, the process of atonement puts us at one with God again. Otherwise, our relationship with God is broken because God cannot have our sin in his presence. So something has to give for that to happen. And... Initially, it was the animal sacrificial system. Ultimately, it was the sacrifice of Christ himself that brings us back to that fellowship with God, puts us at one with him. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, if, if we are in that position, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You're back in fellowship with God, not because of what you did or didn't do, but because of Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. Uh, it's the end of Moses reiterating the law to the people, and he has spelled it all out again, just as they're about to cross the Jordan River, enter into the promised land. And he says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord your God swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to give them. So he's telling them, look, there's, it's conditional. You can choose. 
you have everything you need to know right here in front of you, and it's reiterated to you on a regular basis, make the choice. Well, as we know from the history of Israel, as we know from our own lives, we choose not God, whatever that means. There's any number of things that we choose on any given day that are contrary to the Word of God, to the, to the desires of God for us as individuals that clearly are sin. The blessing is, once again, uh, in the New Covenant, God takes care of that because we cannot. Once we've broken the covenant, we can't go back and put it together again. So Ezekiel chapter 36, again, I encourage you to look at the whole context and look at all of the times when God says, I will. Because when God says, I will, he doesn't just say, I have good intentions. I will do this. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It becomes not then just a matter of choosing, it becomes a matter of submitting. And then God accomplishes his purpose in that. Confirmation of that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 17, makes it clear to us, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the objective of Christ coming, being the groom who has chosen a particular bride, all of his people that constitute his church. And he's still doing that. And as John alluded to earlier, we have the privilege of participating in that process of bringing more people into that group, the church, which constitutes the bride of Christ. So we have this whole thing with old garment and new garment or new patch. The old covenant did not suffice. The intention was for people to put the, the old covenant on and to wear it as a garment, if you will, and to live in it. And if they did, they would have a relationship with God because of wearing that garment. But that wasn't God's ultimate intention. The purpose of that garment was to show that it wasn't sufficient. And that's where Jesus talks about a garment that's got some deficiencies to it. It wasn't enough because the people wouldn't keep the garment on. And in fact, as we alluded, they didn't even put the garment on. They were already breaking the law before they even knew what the law was. So Jesus, in talking about this patching thing, he says, I'm not going to give you 
a garment that's patched up. I'm not going to take some new thing and just kind of put a Band-Aid on your, your shirt, if you will. One of the other gospel writers goes so far as to say, nobody is going to go and buy a new shirt and then rip a piece of it out and sew it on to an old shirt. You just don't do that. That doesn't make sense. I mean, you might have this old favorite shirt, and you might sew it up and patch it up and all that business, but you're not going to take and spend your money on a brand new shirt, destroy the brand new shirt to fix the old shirt. Similar with the wine. Very common sense. I mean, it, we don't do this, but wineskins typically in that day were made out of goat skins that were sewed up. You would take a brand new skin and put fresh crushed grape juice in it, seal it up, set it aside, let it ferment. The fermenting process, of course, creates gas which expands, and the new skin could accommodate the expansion. If you were to take new wine, put it in an old wine skin that had been around for several years, they, they get dry and brittle, and the expansion would explode the skin and ruin it, and the wine would spill out, and you would have no wine. So you have no skin or wine. Jesus says, we're not going to have this kind of a patched up thing. We're not going to have the opportunity for this perfectly good gift to be spilled out and destroyed and wasted on the ground. So new wine is for new skins. And the new garment is, as I mentioned earlier, the righteousness of Christ that he accomplished that we can't. We put that garment on. We put the righteousness of Christ on. God sees us as righteous as Christ is. He sees us just as if we had never sinned. Just as if we had always obeyed. Wine often in the New Testament is a representation, and even in the Old Testament, of the Holy Spirit. I think that's where Jesus was probably going here with the new wine. If you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and he's going to indwell you, he can't indwell an old garment that's got problems, that tends to kind of go astray. <clears throat> so that's where you're in this new covenant situation, he cleanses us. He takes away our old heart, gives us a new heart. He puts his spirit in us. He makes us obedient and follow through with it. It isn't only Emmanuel God with us. It's Emmanuel God within us. And it's a way that we can fulfill everything that God desires for us for the rest of our lives. So you're probably questioning, okay, so should we fast? <clears throat> I mean, what happened to that? And if so, why should we fast? And if not, why not? Well, this whole process that Jesus is spelling out here has to do with motive. 
Why do we do anything we do? As Paul said in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5:17, we should do everything to the glory of God. In another context, just to wrap up here real quickly, uh, Jesus made an assessment of his generation, the time frame in which he lived. And I believe this assessment could be made of any time in history, even before Jesus. And we probably could see how this would reflect on our life situation in our culture right now. Jesus is in the process of teaching. And he's talking about uh, belonging and following and seeing the significance of John and him and all that's taking place. Uh, I didn't have this scripture put up on the screen. I wasn't sure if we would get to this. But Luke chapter 7, if you want to turn there or look at it, uh, just quickly, verses 31 and onward, Jesus says, To what then? Shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. On the one hand, you have the group that says, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. And then the response is from the other group who says, Oh, yeah? Well, we sang a dirge for you, and you did not weep. And then Jesus clarifies what he's saying. He says, for John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom, Jesus says, is justified by all her children. So should we fast? Should we party? Uh, really, that's an issue ultimately individually between it, each person and God. We know that Jesus fasted. We know that he assumed his followers would fast. We know that in the book of Acts, we see the early church fasted and prayed over significant events. We know there's a value to it. Uh, it's become popular in our current culture to uh, participate in what's called intermittent fasting because it helps you stabilize things and it helps your uh, metabolism, and in some cases, you can actually lose weight. Wow, God commanded something that's actually good for you. How about that? What a surprise. Whether you fast or not is going to be an individual choice. A verse that you might want to print out and put it in a prominent place to help you with this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Paul, in the context of activities that are related to our relationship to God. He says, so whether you eat, and you could insert or not, or drink or not, 
whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So, we're not commanded explicitly that we have to do it on a certain day, a certain way, or we're going to be cut off from our people like the old covenant. There's value in it, but ultimately the motive is, are we doing what we're doing for the glory of God, or are we doing it for some other reason? Let us pray. Again, our God and our Father, we thank you for your word and its richness. We thank you for Jesus coming and being the giver of life, the bearer of truth, and ultimately your wisdom personified where we can see and hear and understand the value of trusting in him alone. We thank you for your faithfulness and goodness to us. We thank you for the provisions that you've made for us. We thank you for calling us to be your people and making that real, not just a suggestion or not just an opportunity if we avail ourselves of it, but you, according to your word, when you bring someone to yourself, you cause us to be new and you cause us to be those who obey you and cause us to bring you glory which you deserve. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name.